the Startup Sensations podcast. First-hand accounts of the real stories behind the successes, challenges, and opportunities of starting and growing a startup company. Welcome to Startup Sensations, from both sides of the pond, with Belent Osman and Shelley Bays. And welcome back to another episode of the Startup Sensations podcast with me, Belent Osman, from just outside London here in the UK. And me, Shelley Bays. I'm here in California, near the ocean. Well, Shelley, we've got another interesting episode, I think, today. Yes, Belent, and I think this will be fun for our listeners. So this is not a founder, per se. This is not an investor. This is somebody who was brought in to a startup at a pivotal point in its growth, specifically to organize and coordinate business processes to accelerate the growth and development of an exciting company. So this is a kind of a professional manager, if you will, and very, very interesting because that's a different role than a startup founder. And often, if not handled properly, that role can generate conflict within an organization or on the other side, if it's not recognized by the CEO that that kind of a role is needed at this point, it can cause problems for the company in a different way. So I'm sure you have some thoughts and opinions and maybe some experience on the topic, Belent. Yes, Shelley. Um, I mean, it's a very interesting area because in any startup, the founders will be going hell for leather to create the product and to do a bit of marketing and to get as many sales in as possible. And it's a scramble in those very early days. you scrambling to close deals and to look after customers whilst at the same time try to do everything else about getting this business off the ground. But there comes a point in time during that journey where it's important to stop, take stock of where the business is and think about productivity and efficiency. And this is where you might want to bring somebody in whose role it is primarily to look at business processes, to look at communication, to look at the way things have been done and streamline it. And I think of it as the first steps of scaling a business. So in those early days, we're all hands to the pump. We're all doing what we need to do. But of course, that can't scale because once you start getting more and more customers, it's important to have processes and efficiencies. And this is where the founders really do need to think about potentially bringing somebody else in. And I remember a time when I reached this point when I brought a a wonderful lady in called Jo, and she had a very wide-ranging role of in effect, a chief of staff, really. A Joe of all trades. Yes. <laughs> and she was fantastic. Uh, and she kept me in check, right? And <laughs> and uh, made sure that I didn't forget to do certain things uh, because you know every day was a hectic day. And she brought some calm and order and process and clear communication. And that really helped the company to stabilize and to build a strong foundation from which then you can grow and scale the business. And I think our guest today has been a master of that, hasn't she? Yes, I think she personifies many of the characteristics that you just talked about. Claire Woodthorpe, who is currently operating as Chief Operating Officer of Lightpoint Medical, which is a very interesting med tech company. She'll describe a bit about it. Her educational background were in the very um, structured 
areas of accounting and law. And she'll tell us a little bit about how that fed into her later career. But I think she'll have a lot of interesting perspectives to share with us. And I'm looking forward to chatting with her. Yeah, me too. Claire, such a pleasure to have you here. How how are things today where you are in Barcelona? It is. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on. Uh, things in Barcelona are sunny. It's fabulous. I go in the sunburn at the weekend. I'm very much enjoying the uh, the Southern European way of life. Super, super. And I'm in California, as usual, with sunshine. So uh, we're both having <laughs> a good day so far. So Claire, you are Chief Operating Officer now of Lightpoint Medical. And maybe just to begin, you can kind of give a brief description of the company. Um, and then maybe we'll go back in time and kind of work our way up to how you got to this role. Uh, so Lightpoint sits at the kind of the cutting edge of the new nuclear medicine revolution. So with the advent of cancer-targeted drugs, we are now taking nuclear medicine into the operating theatre so we can actually find cancer in real time with these new drugs. Um, and Lightpoint is providing the devices that are needed to do that in a minimally invasive surgery setting. So robotic surgery is obviously almost the norm in, in some areas. Um, and so we need tools that's worked specifically with these robots and can actually allow surgeons to take advantage of this kind of new, um, new ability they have to find these drugs interoperatively. So we have a, a suite of products um, that work in different indications with different emissions and different drugs. Um, but our, probably our most well-known is the Sensei Gamma Probe, which uh, is targeting um, prostate cancer with a drug called PSMA. Super, super. I remember seeing Lightpoint for the first time years ago. We'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, and just being impressed. And I'm just super impressed as to where the company's gone. So, um, but, let, but let's go back in time a little bit. You started off in, I think, accounting with a law dimension associated with it out of uh, university. You went into that field, I presume, thinking you were going to be an accountant. But then how did that prepare you for um, not being an accountant later on in life? I kind of fell into that degree. There was very little choice around, right? When I was uh, when I was doing my exams, when I was at school, if you were in the top set, you were going to be a lawyer, a doctor, or an accountant. Uh, uh-huh. Didn't want to be a doctor. And so I did both uh, law and accounts. But actually, the combined kind of law accounts training has been invaluable in my career in the kind of startup tech industry. Actually, if there are two skills that you needed to be a chief operating officer in, the, in this industry, that's them. You know, that's, that's actually really interesting because I've talked to several people whose background has been law, finance, accounting, that sort of thing. And they're now running or a principal in a startup in a totally different field. And they say the same thing. There's something about those disciplines, how they're supportive of business, the business structure, uh, actually came in very handy. Yeah, really handy. And and particularly in a regulated environment. I mean, I obviously work in health, but mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. the law background allows you to understand the regulatory environment and to understand the quality management systems. I mean, the regulations, they're written as more as guidance than like they don't tell you exactly what to do. So, you know, your law background kind of allows you to interpret what what's meant by that and how you can put a case together that demonstrates you're meeting the regulations. Mm-hmm. That was invaluable. 
obviously, you know, finance is, is always useful, but but I found outside of just the numbers, uh, the project management side of it, you know, if you're managing budgets, managing projects, it's, it's all runs together. Yeah, absolutely. So at a university then, here you come with this sort of combination degree, and um, you worked for a group called the Cogent Business Group. Tell us a little bit about that. I don't know much about them. So Cogent was my, my first jump into tech. So I've been working as a tax specialist for uh, high net worth individuals, landed estates. Mm-hmm. That was really useful because I found that the people that I was working for then, the, the kind of the, the trust estates and accounts that I were managing, actually, they are the people that invest in startups, particularly in the UK, but you know, throughout everywhere. So the family offices that I've been previously you know, on the other end of, um, actually, when I moved into the startup environment, it's the same people, but you're on the, the other side of the table. So it was really useful, actually, because it gave me um, exposure to what those family offices need, what they're looking for. And also, the, just so I kind of knew my investor, if you like. Mm-hmm. Cogent happened because I had a, a, a client who started a, a med tech startup and said did I want to come uh, and be his finance director and I was like well I'm actually not a great accountant so I, I went and started working for him um, and it was an incredible experience for a number of reasons in two years we went from seven people in a in a rented office above a storage locker to 150 wow. in, like, this massive kind of three-story building I learned a huge amount about rapid change, um, how to manage systems through rapid change. I also learned an awful lot about the founder because that was the first time for me working in a startup environment where I think the key thing I learned there was that this, this particular founder was privately funding the whole thing, right? There was no grants, there was no huge fundraising efforts. And so everything was very personal, mm-hmm. rightly so. Mm-hmm. You know, it's your, it actually is the house on the line, right? So it was the first time I'd worked in an environment where that was the case. Um, and actually, it's the first time I'd seen some decisions being made more emotively than rationally. And so it was my first encounter of that. Mm. It took a while to get used to, if I'm honest. I think um, it was a really, really exciting experience. It got very big very quickly. And so change management there was was the biggest thing I learned. Well, as well as learning to get along, you know what I mean, with somebody who is operating at an emotional level. Yeah, I think this one is quite unique because the company went much further than it normally would have done with private funding. Normally, you would have had investors by this point, you'd have a board, you know. But this was essentially just this one guy and his vision. And he was involved in every decision, at every level. Mm-hmm. And you've got to remember that people who are doing that are, have been successful in their field because they're very good at it. Yeah. And because they've got, I mean, to be successful, you've got to be a little bit pig-headed. You know, you've got to be driven. You've got to be a go-getter. Um, so, you know, taking that kind of personality and throwing it across, you know, how many tea bags you need, it's a really, really interesting environment to be in. And it mm-hmm. takes a lot to get used to. And, and for me, coming from a tax and finance and very professional, very, you know, very rational environment. It was a massive culture shock. 
So did you join Perkin Elmer after that or was that before? How am I getting the chronology right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so I worked for Cogent um, for about three or four years, I think. Perkin Elmer, I mean, to be honest, it was a really short kind of interim position. Dexella was the company um, and they'd been taken over by Perkin Elmer. I see. And what I saw there was what happens when small innovative startups get taken over by large multinationals with very kind of heavy compliance and systems. Mm-hmm. And what happens when proper change management is, is not followed. I don't think it's a shock to anyone that the initial takeover didn't go particularly well. And I was brought in to kind of help try and smooth out, get some connection between the systems that allowed the startup to be fast, innovative, you know, all the things they wanted and allowed it to operate like that within the confines of, of a big company, you know, systems and processes, which it's challenging, but it, it can be done. Mm-hmm. Well, there were two biggest learnings from that one. One was the importance of planning properly, change and culture collisions, just making sure if you're going to go into something like that. And I found it later in my career with, with like when we're doing grant projects, for example, you know, when we have partners, mm-hmm. actually to spend a lot of time up front understanding how your partner works, how they're going to need you to work, defining the communication routes and not just kind of flying into it, assuming everybody wants the same thing. So it's going to go well, like, like literally never happens. No, that's that's actually an important point. I think it's important to understand the dynamics of the core set of people that are playing in. If you don't take the time to understand where they're all coming from, it's not going to work or it's going to work in a very bumpy way. Yeah, even kind of further down the chain than that. I mean, I think grant projects are probably the one that most startups will encounter at first. Later on, obviously, you'll get to the kind of the mergers and the acquisitions. And Mm -hmm. even at the really simple kind of we are working with this company, it's, you know, who makes the decision? um, How often do they communicate? What is their business rhythm? At that level, the agendas are probably normally quite well aligned. You know, it's a project that a lot of people, a grant project, we've spent a lot of time defining the milestones and defining the, the outcomes. So that's pretty much understood, or at least should be. The devil's in the details, as they say. Yeah, the devil's there. <laughs> so so I met David. I was trying to think back. I went back through my notes. I met him in 2014 when he was fundraising for a light point. I think we introduced him to some investors in the UK and in, and in France as well. Um, funny story. He came to France to present to a group of investors. I'd organized this meeting and he comes in and he says to me before we start the meeting, he says, Shelly, you know, I filled my round. It's like, oh, great. I said, look, just present because he's a fabulous presenter. Yeah, yeah, he's great. And he ended up getting more money and taking it from that meeting. But it was it was one of those moments where I thought, oh, no, what am I going to do? <laughs> so, Claire, David convinced you to come to Lightpoint. Yeah. How did all that come about? Okay, so if you ask David, he will tell you that I recruited myself. <laughs> um, it's not entirely wrong, um, to be honest. I was I finished with Perkinama. Mm-hmm. I was aware of Lightpoint because the technology they were doing at the time, um, the Turenkov. There have been some groups that I've been working with that have been trying to trying to achieve it. 
and couldn't get there. Yep. And this Lightpoint, this little tiny company that no one had heard of, seemed to have this, this tech that was working. So I was really interested in how that was happening. And I was really interested in the kind of the talent and the team that had been able to achieve it. So I kind of, you know, rang David. I think he was looking for an, an ops director or something. Mm-hmm. And I kind of rang him up and told him, well, I don't really do ops director. And plus, you know, I, I think you need a general up. I'll come. I'll come for come for a few months and then you know we'll we'll see how it's going. It's like I'm, I'm sorry, who are you? But yeah, I was really I was really intrigued by this this little company that was doing these really great things. And then when I got there, and obviously I met David, who is yeah, inspirational. I was really impressed with I th- and I just saw so much potential. Mm. And I'm I'm sure David won't mind me saying this because it was you know a long time ago. But I also saw a lot that kind of needed to change. I was like, okay, you know, what he'd done, and it's what a lot of founders do. It's got really top heavy. So he recruited a, a group of like you know senior senior managers, like director levels, to lead these functions, which can work if the directors you're recruiting are prepared to get their hands dirty and get like really involved. But if what you're doing is recruiting out of big corporate, normally the people that you hire have a team and millions of budget and therefore they, they can they can make things happen, but actually doing them, you know, not, not the sweet spot. And so when I got there, he's kind of had a team that needed some shuffling and I could see quite quickly what could happen, what needed to happen. And fortunately, David and I had a, a, a really very open communication style right from the beginning. And he kind of, you know, over the first kind of five years, I was like, kind of handed over, like, you know, department by department. Yeah, his kind of, you know, generosity and guidance and trust kind of let me go from more oversight of, you know, really just kind of the front end and the manufacturing. But I've also, I also took on, you know, clinical and the um, research teams as well under his guidance at first. And then when he was comfortable that I wasn't going to kill the company, stepped away and left me to it. You know, one of the problems that one hears many, many times with uh, startups is the founder is, like you used the word inspiration. They are the person that got everything going, their heart and soul and life is involved in this. And at some point, it probably is important for them to step back in a way or step into a different role. You can't grow unless you do, but it's often hard for founders to do that, to, to kind of feel like they're letting go. They really have to have trust. Yeah. And and the other thing that's kind of interesting, you know, I see a lot of articles and other things talking about the issues that female founders face in the workplace. But you're describing kind of an interesting role, which you weren't the founder, but arguably you came in and had as much challenge in a different way uh, that required finesse and required communication and required great learning. So from the standpoint, especially of a female coming into a role that, you know, was already established, a male founder. Tell us how you kind of went at it. So some of the challenges I faced, I think, are faced regardless of your gender. The biggest one, uh, when you've got such a wide role as me, is that you are not an expert in everything. I can argue with the finance team all day. I can argue with the ranks team. I can argue with the quality team. Over the years, I can probably argue with the manufacturing team. (laughs) But when my head of physics, my head of research comes to me and tells me something, I kind of have to acknowledge that this is not your area. 
and you hire people that you trust to do it and then you have to trust them to do it and also you have to be prepared to learn from them so at one point um in Lightpoint, my senior management team uh they used to call themselves like the gray hair brigade because they've all been doing this for a long i mean it made performance development reviews quite interesting because the answer to where do you see yourself in five years was always retired <laughs> you have to have enough confidence in what you're good at to know what you can't do and then ask the people that can and that is the same for anyone that goes into such a wide role. And it was the same for David, which is why I was there. You know, David could do the research, the clinical, the product development in the same way that I could do the, the finance, the, the quality of the recs. So we kind of had to trust each other's skills, learn from each other and then learn from our teams. And that's the challenges you find along the way there. That's non-gender specific. You know, that's all about. Trusting yourself. I mean, you can trust the other people, but if you don't trust yourself to be able to make a good decision, it's never going to work. Mm -hmm. Some of the female-specific issues, I've been to countless awards dues where my husband has been asked, you know, oh, so tell me about the technology. I've been, you know, do you work in marketing? Oh, you know, you're very bubbly. Are you in sale? I'm like, no, man, it's my company. I have to tell you a funny story. So I'm in London, right? I'm running this trading company and I'm going to an office to meet the sort of my counterpart at a very big bank that will go unnamed, right? So I approached the desk downstairs, the welcome desk, and a man uh, approaches as the same, sort of at the same time as me, but slightly behind me. And the person behind the desk says to him, may I help you, sir? Well, turns out he was a limo driver picking up someone. And of course, I was the one having the meeting with the big guy in the building. I'm going to say that at least nine times out of 10, somebody you know, asks my husband if he's there to pick up the award. And I'm like, if you don't know by now, I'm here to pick it up. You should. Yeah. It's got my name next to it. This is not my first rodeo. Like, step your game up. There's a lot of that. I mean, you have to, you, yeah, you have to laugh, but we do. Yeah. Um, yeah. The problem is, as well, so you, there's two issues, right? The first one is the underlying assumption that you're not there to do the job you don't do. But then what comes with that is like women who are driven are seen as uh, aggressive and difficult, right? I had a boss once who said to me, you've got the same problem as Hillary Clinton. He said, if she was a man, everyone would think she was great. As it is, everyone hates her. And I was like, does everyone hate me? But, <laughs> that what we're but you know, it was, it was just, I was like, but it's true. So you'll be in a situation where if you haven't been dealing with this for the last 25 years, you could be offended. And if you, if you pick someone up on it, you can then be perceived as aggressive and difficult, yeah. et cetera. So you got to pick your fights. It's best not to do it with people who are considering investing in the company, uh, I've found. I'd like to think it's getting better. It, there's a particular generation that, that still have a huge amount of bias. But I like to think that my generation are, are getting better. I'm, I'm in my mid-40s, heading towards 50. And um, my generation, I think, have got a much much less unconscious bias in some areas. So, we, you know, we talk about women versus men. What about US, UK, EU? You know, these are all different cultures. Give us some of your top line observations of cultural differences that have worked well or have made things difficult. The vast majority of my experience has been in the uh, UK. Um, obviously, I'm now working in Europe, in the EU. I have 
had some experiences in the US. I've got to tell you, I found the US to be more accessible for a startup. At least on the face of it, it's more accessible. People want to hear what you've got to say. If you scream loud enough, someone will hear you. Especially with a British accent, because they like that. (laughs) (laughs) In the UK, there are still a lot of very closed doors. There are ways in, you you just have to know them. So, you know, the really early stage startups looking for kind of sub 30 mil, you know, really, really early. There's a lot there, you know, crowdfunding angels. it's, It's all quite accessible. When you get to that tricky point, just before you go institutional, so you're looking at private money, but you're looking at investments of million plus. So you're probably valued somewhere between I don't know, 35 and 65, you know, that kind of danger zone. Then it's a much more closed network and it comes with a particular structure. Now, as I said earlier, when I was working in tax, I was working on the other side of this. So I had a bit of an advantage in that. I knew what these people were, were looking for. I knew what how to structure a proposal. Mm-hmm. But if you're if you know if you're an, an innovative tech guy who's you know got this company to where it needs you, you're then facing unknown. It really is in looking into the abyss at that point. So that's that's difficult in the UK, and I didn't see it as much in the US. How about working in the EU? You're in Barcelona. Obviously, it's amazing. I love Barcelona. Um, I find Europe more progressive than the UK, but not as progressive as the US. Okay. It's kind of nicely in the middle. Um, I've not done much fundraising here, so I, I can't really speak to my experience with the investor groups. But certainly um, within healthcare, the UK, over the years, that the health service in the UK, we all know, is has not been well-funded. And as a result, a lot of the practices and systems that they have there, you know, there's still a lot of paper records going on, etc. Mm. Whereas Europe seems to be a lot more joined up, a lot more, you know, further ahead in, in many areas, not all of them, mm. to do, you know, clinical trials and to work within kind of clinical development in Europe since Brexit. Obviously, the opportunities for collaboration, theoretically, it still exists with the UK, but I mean, realistically. It's hard. Yeah. And so Lightpoint is moving forward, um, doing well. Where do you see you in particular going over the next few years? You're too young to retire, so don't say retire. Well, I'm, <laughs> so I'm quite right to retire. Um, so as I, I said earlier, Lightpoint is almost uniquely placed to take advantage of this nuclear medicine revolution. Uh, you know, so surgery, radioguided surgery is like the new theranostic. We now have the opportunity to take these cancer-targeting drugs, label them, and find these emissions interoperatively. We've not been able to do this before. It's the first time in history, and it, it's really exciting. But what's happened in the time since nuclear medicine has kind of you know, got to this point, the tools you need for surgery have, have become... The antiquated. Yeah. The existing ones don't work in modern practice. And so light point, kind of we're ahead of the curve on this one. We're not the only one, but we are probably more advanced, I would say, commercially than many of the others were in the field. Mm-hmm. And so we are uniquely positioned to take advantage of the, the kind of the, the new opportunities there. And, uh, and we're doing so, you know, it's, it's really exciting. We are looking at big partnerships. We're working with some of the world leaders in both robotics and radiopharmaceuticals. We are very much stepping up now and playing in a much bigger field. 
David always likes to compare the company to um, stages of a child. He's been referring to us as, uh, as teenagers uh, for a while. And I think, I think we're probably now heading off to university. I think we've, we've finished high school now. We're, we're, off to, we're off to play. So you've had such an interesting career so far. And, and uh, you know, I wasn't kidding when I said you're, you're too young to, to retire. But, you're, <laughs> but you've had enough experience to really have absorbed uh, a, a bunch of learnings, you know, that you, you use today and you will use going forward. What would you just sort of say to people that are moving into the kind of field you're in, meaning a young company, things aren't perfect? What are, like I don't know, three tips you would share with people? Okay, so the first one, and probably the most important, right? Is when you go into startup and everything's going a million miles an hour, you run with it and you tell yourself, oh, you know, we're going to get a break. Things are going to slow down and I'll, I'll take a holiday then. Or, <laughs> never happens. No. Never happens, right? So pace yourself. You know, it's not going to slow down. You have to, you know, take your time, pace yourself, take the breaks you need. Don't burn yourself out. That's the first and foremost, because I've seen that way too many times. Understand that with the rapid change, you know, you need to make sure just because you understand which direction it's going doesn't mean everyone does, right? You know, not everyone, even the other people in the room may have had a different view of, you know, because it's going so quickly. So taking the time to clearly communicate the overall aims and objectives of the company to each project, to each milestone, it's very important. Everybody has a different way of doing it. Find a way that suits you, but just make sure you do it. And then like, this is like a really detailed role, but really important. So a lot of startups, what will happen is everybody's using their own tool or their own system. And so then when you get to the point that you need to integrate them, it's an absolute nightmare. Like, you know, beyond, like there, there is just, there are no words. It's horrific. Um, it wakes me up at 3.30 in the morning screaming when I think about the experiences that I've had with this. So, you know, even though it seems like really pedantic, you know, there's only five of you, no, we must all be on a PC or a Mac and we must all be using this tool. I would just avoid, avoid getting too many different tools, systems and ways of working because if the company succeeds and you grow, which is what everybody wants, that's going to be a nightmare. Well, super, Claire. This has been really fun for me, honestly. And because I love Lightpoint, I'm I'm so happy to meet you and to know you're there running things. And uh, say hi to David. Oh, well. And uh, thanks again. Thanks again so much for being here today. Thanks, Claire. Thank you. So, Belent, what a fun interview. Claire is just the embodiment of energy. Oh, absolutely. I found her fun and interesting to talk to. And in thinking back on the conversation, I know we talked at the beginning about the importance of process, the importance of organization, and she really elaborated on that. Oh, absolutely. But I also think it's about continuous improvement. And really, Claire mentioned that. And certainly in my experience, I think there comes a time in the business, which we spoke earlier about processes and productivity. But I think part of that formula is for founders to be thinking about the small changes, the incremental improvements on a continuous basis. And it's very typical, of course, to prioritize the important tasks of the day, of the week, of the month. And maybe the small things get missed because, you know, 
they're not very important or don't seem to be at that time. But I just think it's important to carve out some time to make sure that these small little improvements get done because they accumulate over time. Absolutely. And that helps with the overall productivity and efficiency of a company and the way the company's perceived by customers, but also prospective customers as well. You know, another point I found interesting, and I always do because to me, it resonates when female managers, founders, investors, whatever, talk about what it's like being a female in a very male dominated uh, world. And of course, these are strong people. Um, But I had to laugh when she talked about some of the experiences she had when she'd go to a conference and people would think it was her husband who was going to talk or receive (laughs) the award. And oh, no, it's instead it was her. Mm. But what I liked about that is she knows how to laugh off a number of them. And her advice is pick your battles. There are times when it is important to stand up for certain things and to be heard and to not just laugh off something. But it's also important not to take too much offense. Better to laugh them off and save your energy, of which she has an abundance Mm. for the important battles. Thanks for listening to Startup Sensations. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform so you never miss an episode. Get in touch with us. Email hello at startupsensations.com. So that's it for yet another episode of the Startup Sensations podcast. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Startup Sensations. And we look forward to seeing you again next time. See you guys soon.